It's so good to see each of you here. We are continuing in our study in the book of Revelation. We'll start today in reading Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This vision that we're going to be talking about here today follows chapter 20. And in chapter 20, there was a a condemnation of the wicked. And John talks at length about that, and you can go back and read that sometime. But it's followed by something spectacular. It's followed by a completely new creation that awaits those that have believed and trusted in God. John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth. These are total replacements for their old counterparts the first heaven and the first earth, which God had destroyed. In fact, he probably, God probably did this to eliminate any corrupting presence or influence of sin. Let's go to 2 Peter 3 and 7. By the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then drop down to verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. So God is going to eliminate the vast expanse that we see of the heavens and the earth. It goes on to say that he's going to eliminate the seas. It's probable the reason for this is the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the sea was a symbol for agitation and and restlessness that was associated with evil. 
So the symbolic gesture of destroying the seas is doing away with that. And the people understood that um, that was what it represented in their day. In the book of Revelation, the sea is also the source for the beast and the burial of the dead. If you look through several places, it talks about, and the beast came out of the seas. So it's a symbolic gesture, and it's literal, I'm sure, but the symbolism behind it is that if the seas are destroyed, that is in the Old Testament, which was a sign of restlessness, and in the book of Revelation, John had referred to it as the place where the beast had come out of. So in destroying the old heaven and the old earth, All of those old things that represented corruption are gone. And by destroying the seas, the negativity of that those things symbolized is also gone. But he doesn't leave it at that. He quickly goes from these things to speak about a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, in verses 21 and 2. And he says this is what God sent down from heaven. It says that this city is magnificently adorned as a bride is for the husband. And I believe the implication here is that the city surpasses the beauty of anything anybody could imagine. This new heaven and new earth is going to be far superior to what anybody saw in the present day. That would be back then and also in our day. Some people think that the New Jerusalem is a symbol of the Christian church or the community, Christian community in heaven. If you look at the detailed description of, of this in verses 10 through 21, other people maintain that the New Jerusalem will be a literal city where God's people will dwell. In either case, this is like a lot of other things that we talk about, the specifics of it are not as important as the overall meaning behind it. In either case, the main point that is there is a new world that is coming. God will destroy the old heavens and the old earth, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And whether it means this or whether it means that or, or whatever the symbolism is, the important thing is that there is something better that is coming. And a voice from heaven calls out, and it says, The tabernacle of God is with men. And I believe that this, what this is symbolizing is that, is that when we are in that new heaven and that new earth has come, that God's Spirit will dwell with man all of the time. And even though we are saved and we have the Spirit of God in us, we go into a world that is not a holy place. And I believe what John was trying to get across to the people of that day is that when this new heaven and new earth comes, there won't be going out into a world of sin. We will dwell continually with God and He will be continually with us. The voice also went on to say that there were some things that were going to be eliminated from the earth. And there are five things that it specifically talks about. It says that there will be no more tears. 
There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow, no crying, and no pain. And he follows that up with saying that all the old things are gone, and all things have become new. And I believe John was doing his best again here to describe a scene that was beyond comprehension. Because in our lives, we can't, we really can't imagine a life that has no tears, no death, no sorrow, no pain. None of those things will exist in this new heaven, this new earth. And he told John to write down these things that he had spoken because they were true and faithful. I believe that we can stake our very lives, our very existence, on the fact that the word that we read throughout this book are accurate and reliable. The phrase in verse 6, it is done, can also mean it has happened. And at this point, it's done. The old heaven and the old earth passed away, and behold, there is a new heaven and a new earth. And at this point, it has all happened. It has come to pass. I believe that again it kind of reiterates the thought that God is eternal. He is absolute. And the things that he told John when he said, write this down, he meant to emphasize these things are going to happen. If we are speaking to somebody and, and we really want to make a point, a lot of times we'll say, write this down. You can write that down. And that's kind of what God was speaking to John. Write this down and let this be known to everyone that the things that I'm telling you, they are accurate. The things that I'm telling you, they will happen. These things are true. And we've often said that there's an awful lot of symbolism. The one thing that's not symbolic is that everything that we know now And everything that we see in this existing world will be gone. That's literal. The other thing that's literal is that we, as believers, will see something and we will be part of something that we cannot even imagine. John spoke in in this book, and we're not reading that particular portion, but you go back and you read about the splendor of how he tried to describe heaven. And I believe that even in his description, as magnificent as it is, it still pales to what will really be there. But the best he could come up with is that the streets were paved with gold. The walls were of jasper. The gates were of pearl. And he talks about all the different precious stones and how this was made of this precious stone and this was made of this precious stone. And it was everything he could do to come up with words to describe what he saw. And I think it still will fall short of what we will experience. He spoke that I am the Alpha and the Omega 
When God declared himself as the Alpha and Omega, obviously it represented the letters of the Greek alphabet, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He is saying, I am the first and the last, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. He's also saying, I am, and there is no other. If I am everything from Alpha to Omega, then there is nothing else but me. There is no room for anything but me. And there's nothing in between because I'm everything in between too. It's similar to what we see in a couple other places in the book of Revelation. He refers to himself as the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he is truly the beginning and the end of all things. In, in Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here we are in the description of the end time, and it's still that very same God that was spoken about in the very beginning. So truly, he is the Alpha, and he is the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. His rule encompasses the the past, the present, and the future. Again, in another place where we read in the book of Revelation, the they were singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. He is sovereign. All that has taken place and that ever will take place in human history is exactly the way that he directed it to take place. Nothing that has happened in history has been strictly happenstance. It hasn't been just, well, it it just went that way. God has a plan. And if you read the Word of God and you study it, you'll see that it really has gone exactly the way He said. He set this thing into motion from the very beginning. You say, well... The Adam and Eve thing didn't seem to work out very well. He knew what was going to happen. He knew Adam and Eve were going to fall because before they even were created, he had a plan worked out so that they could be redeemed. And we'll get onto that in just a little bit. And then God promises later in the passage that we're reading to give the Him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And I believe this talks about that once we are in this this new heaven and this new earth, that it's eternal. And that eternity is very difficult for us to imagine. And I've heard it described in a lot of different ways. And it's just beyond comprehension as human beings, as to what eternity is. We hear somebody that lives to be 100 years old, and we think, wow, that's old. And if somebody lives to be like 105, that's ancient. But 100 years is nothing compared to eternity. And we just can't wrap our arms around that. Albert Einstein had a theory of of relativity And he said it like this. 
When a young man canoes across the lake with his fiancée, time passes quickly. Hours seem to be as only a few moments. However, when that same man places his hand on the hot burner of a stove, even though it may be for just a few moments, it seems like hours. And that is his theory of relativity. It's all relative. For us, it's all relative when we think of somebody that lives to be a hundred plus years old as being a long time. But when we get to heaven, a hundred years, we can go on vacation for a hundred years. Think about that. Those of you that haven't been on vacation in a while, I'm looking forward to that. Those who have overcome in this life are promised an eternal inheritance and an eternal relationship with God. Going on, Revelation 21, we're going to read verses 22 through 27. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You know, as many times as I have read this and heard it taught, I don't remember seeing this scripture. I know it's always been there. I just didn't remember seeing it. It says I didn't see a temple because there, God was the temple. The city does not, and I do remember this one, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. That's referring to at nighttime the gates of a city were closed for protection. But since there will never be any night, there's no reason for the gates to ever close. Going on. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Earlier in this chapter, in the passage we, we have skipped over here, is John's description of what that new Jerusalem will be like. And it's really amazing. Go back and read it sometime. It talks about a city that is a giant cube, four square. It's as wide as it is tall and it is deep. And if you look at the measurements, it's probably like 1,400 miles each way. And it talks about emeralds and it talks about all these other precious stones. And you know what? As I read that, I can't imagine that. We go to a jewelry store and look through the the counter and look through the glass and we see diamonds and we see emeralds and we see these little tiny stones. And I don't know about you, but I'm just amazed at the beauty. And it's hard to imagine that when we get to heaven, that will be commonplace. It just won't mean a whole lot. We look at and we see that gold is 800 and some dollars an ounce right now, the highest it's been in 27 years, I believe. 
When we get to heaven, the streets are paved with it. How many ounces will it take to pave a street? I just can't wrap my mind around that and comprehend that. It's just beyond human comprehension of what heaven will be. But sometime, read through that, those verses in chapter 21. I believe it's verses 9 through 21 in chapter 21. It talks about how the city sparkles like a precious gem. It radiates the majesty of the Lord. It's a the same shape as the the most holy place in the temple. Unlike Jerusalem of Bible times, this new Jerusalem will have no temple at all. Why? The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the city's temple. John referred to God as the Lord God Almighty. The Greek word... It's a noun, is pantocrator, which means all-powerful or omnipotent. Outside of Revelation, this term is found one time. In the book of Revelation, it's found nine times. This word that refers to God as all-powerful or omnipotent. John, he liked that word. He wanted to make sure that people got the message who God really is. He's not just God in a jar that we sometimes make Him out to be. We, we sometimes put God in a bottle and, and we just open it up when we need Him. And other than that, we live our own life and then when things go wrong and we need Him, all of a sudden we open it up and we want Him to come out like a genie. And I think John was trying to make the point, He's not like that. He is omnipotent. He is God Almighty. In fact, He's so great, there won't be a need for a temple. He is the temple. The Word conveys the sense that, that God is invincible. And I believe the idea of that is, no matter how fierce or how, mu- how much the devil will come against us in this life, He can't win. Because God is the Almighty One. Yes, we might fight a few battles down here. We might even lose a few battles down here. But we won't lose the war because God is invincible. The new Jerusalem will have no need for the sun or the moon. Again, it's just hard to imagine. The other night we were at a wedding down in, in um, Anna Maria Island. And it was on a beach. And Jeffrey and I walked out after the wedding and it was dark. And the moon was not even a half moon. But the sky was so clear that the moon lit up everything. The water was lit up. The beach was lit up. It was just amazing how much light came from just the moon. But when we get to heaven, there will be no need for a moon because there's no night. And there will be no need for the sun because the God we serve will be the light 
that we see. And I believe one of the things that it conveys is that so many times night has a, a connotation of, of fear. As little kids, sometimes we were afraid of the dark. And when there's no night, it means there's no fear. We're in a place of eternal safety, a place of eternal security. The gates never close because there's nothing to bother us. I had this conversation with a gentleman that I have referred to several other times that when he comes down to visit his son, we talk about the Bible a lot. And we were talking about how many of these things are literal versus just figurative. And I said, do you really think there'll be gates there? He goes, well, sure. I said, what are they for? If we're in heaven, are we want to try to get out? And there won't be any bad people to get in, so what's the purpose of the gates there? So whether they are or whether there aren't, one thing for sure, they don't ever close. Like Dunkin' Donut. Probably be one of those there. They're there for beauty. He goes on to say that the people that are there are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Book of Life is referred to a lot in Revelation. In fact, if you go back to Revelation, let's, let's just look at a couple other places. Revelation 3 and 5. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. This is where John is writing and he's talking about the church at Sardis. And he is saying that those who are saved... Their name will be in that book of life. And no one can take it out. And we're not going to go on to eternal security or anything like that. But that's what he's saying to the church here. The next occurrence is in chapter 13 and verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. And here, it's just the opposite. Those whose names have not been written in the book are the ones that are going to be serving the beast. And anyone that's serving the beast, their name will not be in the book of life. The book of life is symbolic of a person who has made a total commitment to living for God. The book of life is not the Sunday school role. Just because your name is on the Sunday school roll and they have your name officially maybe even typed in, not just handwritten, that is not the book of life. Because not only can your name be in the Sunday school roll, but you can have check marks there for every time you were present and still not have your name in the book of life. And that's the one that really matters. Yes, we want you to be at church. Yes, we want you to be in Sunday school. But the most important book that you can have your name in would be the book of life. 
It could also mean in this passage of Scripture that God has placed... Stay with me for just a minute here. God has placed these names in there from the beginning of time. You go, well, how could that be? That sounds like predestination. No, that's not predestination. That is knowledge of all things. When God created the world, not only did He know Adam and Eve would sin, but He knew everyone that would come behind Adam and Eve and would follow them. In fact, He knew you. And He knew a little bit further because the Bible speaks of how He knows the end from the beginning. He knew that when you die whether or not your name was in that book of life. So really, he could have had the book of life already filled out from the beginning of time. That doesn't mean that you don't have a choice because the choice is totally yours. He just knows what choice you're going to make. That's not predestination. That's just knowledge of all things. If that doesn't make sense, get with me after and I'll go through it again. In chapter 17 in verse 8. It made sense to me. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, how about that, will be astonished when they see the beast, for he once was, now is not, and yet will come. Again, the significance of the book of life. John is just trying to get this across. This is the important thing. We talked often about how worship is is woven all through the book of Revelation. The other thing that's woven through there is the importance of your name being in that book of life. In chapter 20 and 12, Chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. At this great white throne of judgment, where everyone will stand, and we will be judged by the deeds we have done, and whether or not our name is in that book. Verse 15, that same chapter. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's pretty cut and dried right there. No need for a lot of explanation. And then in chapter 21 and 27, where we're reading today, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, we have heard in the past uh, an expression about Christians who were too heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. And yes, there are still some of those people around. 
But what has become more common in today's society, I believe, is just the opposite. Is there are so many Christians that are so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. Many Christians have become so preoccupied with the things of this earth that they have forgotten about the things that are really important. And one thing, and I I will mention this again as I often had, is the what's called considered the prosperity movement among churches today. I believe it puts the emphasis on all of the wrong things. When we stand and we spend our time preaching and teaching on that if you do this and this, God will make you wealthy and you will have a big giant house and you will be able to drive a Bentley and you'll have all of these things, it kind of takes away from what heaven's supposed to be. John went out of his way to talk about the magnificence of heaven. And he used all of the words and descriptions that he could possibly think of as a man to describe how magnificent heaven will be. Why? Because it was something greater than we ever can imagine here on this earth. And yet we have people today that will stand and preach and teach to people. And instead of teaching salvation and what we need to do to get our name in that Lamb's book of life, They talk about how we can get wealthy here on this earth. Now let me clarify something. I have no problem with being wealthy. I personally am not. But if you are, that's great. I hope that God blesses you abundantly and you can be a multi-bazillionaire before you leave this earth. But I assure you that's not what it's all about. When we lose sight of what John was trying to describe as this magnificent heaven, this magnificent place that is beyond our imagination, and words cannot even express or begin to express, and we lose sight of that, and we start focusing everything on what we can have down here. We've lost it. Because John made it clear that the most important thing was that our name was written in that book of life. Because if it's in that book of life, we have an inheritance that is promised to us. And that inheritance is greater than anything that we could ever accomplish down here on this earth. There are those, on the other hand, that have just completely rejected Christ's offer of eternal life. And they place their hope on the things of this world, the things that we see here. And I'm not talking about Christians. It's bad enough for, for the world to place their importance on that, but there are Christians that do it also. But the world, in a lot of cases, has God is not even at anywhere in their mind. When they go to make their plans for the future or their plans for today, God is not in that. Why? Because it's all about here and now. And I believe that apart from all the scary stuff in the book of Revelation that we've always heard, it's not all just scary stuff to keep us up at night. The thing about the book of Revelation that's so phenomenal is that it's promises of magnificence too. 
and its promises of what is to come. Yes, there is some scary stuff. But the important thing is, if you're saved and your name is in that Lamb's Book of Life, you really don't have to worry about the scary stuff. That's right. There are people that spend their entire life trying to amass something here on this earth. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with being successful. I, I, I applaud people that work hard and make something out of their life and, and, and put together something that they can pass on to their family as an inheritance. But let me assure you of one thing. There is no inheritance that you can amass here on earth and pass on to your children and grandchildren that will even come close to what the inheritance of those who have served God will be. And so we, we look at this and we say, well, how do I get that inheritance? How do I get my inheritance? What do I have to do and how much does it cost? I want to go to Colossians chapter 1 and read verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. What does it mean that we've been qualified? We were not worthy of this inheritance, but somehow we have still been qualified. And it's wonderful to think that somehow through some process we have been qualified to receive this inheritance that's spoken of in these scriptures. We have been made legitimate heirs of God. And only heirs receive the inheritance. Only those, if in the natural world, only those whose name is listed in the will receive their portion of the inheritance. And if you want to look at it in, in ways that maybe we understand better, that Lamb's Book of Life is kind of like the will. If your name is not written there, you don't get any of it. And I think that's why John made such a big deal through the book of Revelation about our name being written in the Lamb's book of life. So how did God accomplish this? Just exactly how did He qualify us? What made us worthy of the eternal, eternal inheritance? In verse 14 it says, In whom Christ we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. You see, it's nothing we did. There is nothing that we could ever do in this life to qualify ourselves for this inheritance. It is only through Christ. And the work of Christ can be summed up, I believe, in the two words that we see here. The words are redemption and forgiveness. What does it mean to have redemption? 
Literally, redemption means to buy it back. And we have been bought back by God. I want you to think about something for a minute. Think about a pawn shop. Anyone here other than Tony ever been to a pawn shop? Tony is the pawn shop king of the world. If you go back in that sound room, you cannot imagine how much stuff he has found. In fact, our new sound mixing board, Tony found it at a pawn shop. It was brand new, but always being the vigil and vigilant one, Tony found that there. Pawn shops have a lot of great stuff. I was there with Tony the other day when we picked up that mixing board. There's all kinds of stuff. There's jewelry and there's tools and and TVs and stereos, all kinds of stuff. The thing about all of the items that are there is that they all used to belong to someone else. In some cases, they just came in and sold them to the pawn shop. In other cases, they brought them in and they borrowed money using that item as collateral in hopes that they would go back and give them their money back and they would get that piece of merchandise back. In essence, they were going to redeem that item from the pawnbroker. So what they were doing is actually buying back or redeeming what they used to own. Let me tell you a story. There was a little boy. He carved a sailboat out of a solid single piece of wood. He spent lots of time creating this boat. And it was beautiful when it was finished. But he wanted to see if it really worked like it was supposed to. So he went down to a stream. And I would advise you that just because you build a boat, you don't always have to go down to the stream to try it out. My brother and I did that one time and we got spanked big time. We made a raft and we just couldn't stay off of it. And as we pushed it out into the canal, as we were on it and about that much water coming up because it didn't float all that well, my dad came up over the hill and um, it was not a pretty picture. (laughs) But anyway... The little boy built this beautiful little boat and he took it down to the stream and he said, I want to see if it does what it's supposed to do. Let's see if it floats. And it did. But the current of the stream was so strong that it caught the little sailboat and it carried it down and the little boy chased after it. And he couldn't keep up with it. And he's running down the bank of the the stream and the little boat's just going down the stream faster. And pretty soon the boat was out of his sight completely. And he searched for it until it got dark. He never did find it. One afternoon he was walking downtown. And he walks by a pawn shop and he sees his boat in the window of the pawn shop. And he recognizes it because he made it. And he went inside and he told his story to the pawn broker. And he said, I made that boat and I'd really like to have it back. 
But the pawnbroker was not really all that impressed. He said, you can have it if you want it, but you've got to pay for it. So the little boy pulled a wad of money out of his pocket. And he unfolded it on the counter. And he bought his sailboat back. And as he walked away from the store, he looked at the boat. And he said to the boat, little boat, you are twice mine. I made you. And I bought you. This is exactly what God has done for us. He made us. And He bought us. He recognized us because He created us. And He knew that there had to be a price to pay. And he was willing to pay that price to purchase us back. We were redeemed not by cash. We were redeemed by Christ and what he did on the cross. Keeping in mind that Jesus was, he was the son of God. And he died in our place. He took the sins that were ours upon himself. He was our substitute. He purchased our salvation by giving his life as a sacrifice. Because of that redemptive work, we can now receive forgiveness for our sins. See, we have to realize that, that God is perfectly loving and He doesn't want to punish us for our sins, but He is also perfectly just, so it requires that he, there is punishment for the sins. And He has to be perfectly just because He's perfectly holy. And His holiness and His justice requires that sin is punished. But forgiveness must be predicated upon redemption. Without redemption, there is no forgiveness, and God cannot overlook our sins. He can't just say, well, it just doesn't really matter. Don't worry about it. He knew that there had to be a price that was paid. And there had to be a sacrifice, not just a sacrifice like in the Old Testament where they would bring a lamb or a goat to the priest. It wasn't like that. Because those, those lambs and those goats and those other sacrifices in the Old Testament under the law, they didn't forgive people's sins. All they did was push them ahead to next year. And then they had to do it all over again. And if they didn't, all those sins came right back on them. But the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ wasn't that way. When He died, His blood covered all the sins that ever were committed and ever would be committed. 
And the Bible says that it separated us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. And that's pretty far. Exactly. Exactly. Our sins have been dealt with by the work of Christ. We don't have to pay the price. On the cross, he not only paid our penalty for sin, but he also broke the power of sin that's over us. And that is what qualifies us for that inheritance. That and that alone is what qualifies us for that inheritance. And verse 13 says that he has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. That means that we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. That's our promise. That's our inheritance. We don't have to pay for it because it's already paid for. And sometimes we can't really, we can't imagine what that really is like. And it just a, a, this doesn't even remotely equate to it, but let me just tell you a quick story. We were at a restaurant one night. Ruthie and Jeffrey and I were at a restaurant, and we're sitting there, and somebody walked by, and I said, I know that person, but I can't think who they are. I couldn't think of his name. Of course, I'm not very good with names, but I couldn't think of their name. Couldn't really think of who they were. And they came in, and they ate, and they left before we did. And when we were finished, the waitress came up and she said, I said, we get our check. She said, no, that man that was here just a little bit ago, he already paid for it. And you know what? It was such an awesome feeling to think that somebody paid something that I owed. And that was just a meal. Look at it on a grander scale of we were punished to death for our sin. And the very God that created us paid for what we owed. 
how can we not be grateful to that kind of God? So in answer to the question, how do I get my inheritance and what does it cost? It's paid for. It's free. It's a simple plan. The Bible says the first thing we do is we just repent. And repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry, it's changing directions. If we're, we're headed this way, we turn around and go the other way. Seems simple enough. We just change direction. And then the Bible says that, that we should be baptized. That's an obedience thing. The water's not magic. It's just out of obedience. It's just water. And then there's this promise that we will receive God's Spirit into our life. It's a promise. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, for this promise is to you and to your children and to all those that are afar off. So it's a promise. It's not a maybe. It's a promise. So how do we receive that inheritance? It's just that simple. We receive it. There's nothing you can do. You could come in here and we could crank up the music and you could leap over all of these pews and run around the building, which is fine if you decide you want to do that. But it won't save you. If you can jump up and down and touch the ceiling while we're singing, it won't save you. What will save you is that simple plan of salvation that we've talked about this morning. It's exactly right. The only thing that we have to do is just accept what's already there. It's pretty simple. We have been bought with a price. Would you close your eyes this morning? I want us just all to, no one looking around, just reflect for a moment. God, you are just so awesome to us. For what you have done, we could never thank you. And I ask this morning if there is there is someone here this morning that has never received what you have given to us, Lord, that you would just touch their heart right now and place something in their heart that they would purpose, I will not leave this place until I have received my inheritance. That they purpose in their heart that They will not leave this place until they know for sure that their name is written in that Lamb's book of life. Not so we can escape hell, but rather so we can experience the love that you have promised to us and all the great things. 
And Lord, we love you so much. And we ask that no one would leave this place today until they have made things right with you. If there's someone here today that needs to repent, Lord, I ask that you would just help us to do that. And understand that we just simply say, Lord, I just want you to forgive me for anything I've ever done and I will change my direction and go in a different direction. If they've never been baptized, we can take care of that. And Lord, just help us to know that your spirit is a gift that is promised to each and every one of us. even though we can't comprehend the magnificence of what heaven will be. Give us that desire to live in this life so that someday we will live with you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Stay with us for a time of worship. It is so good to see each of you here today.